Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So we are blessed this week with an appearance from Fionn Stevenson. Now, for most folk listening to this, she'll probably need no introduction. However, it would be remiss of me to say now. So for them who don't know, she is a professor of sustainable design, a retired one, although you would never know. She is a formidable retrofit firebrand. Uh, she used to be head of Sheffield School of Architecture. I think that was the position she retired from. But it wouldn't be unfair to describe her as some of a, a zealot figure in the world of retrofit in the UK, as I'm sure you'll hear in the course of the episode. It was a, a great conversation. She is fun, forceful. So it was challenging, surprising, and certainly freewheeling. And just for context, it was spurred by a call to action she made a few months back on LinkedIn. There's a link to the post in the show notes in which she was decrying, within reason, fabric first approaches, in which she declared, we need to tackle low hanging fruit first, which seemed like an ideal jumping off point for a conversation with someone who's half stepped out of the game now to speak her mind not have to worry about diplomacy, and give us a chance to hear what she thinks. Go all over the place, as one might imagine, but a particular note, it's a conversation about considering retrofit in the way one might consider dental work, what we should be learning from conservation people and the approaches that they take, as ever, the importance of monitoring and stuff that you might expect, like heat pumps versus insulation, blah, 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 usual things. In the meantime, we can get straight into it in a discussion of the place of infrared heating. As you can imagine, when putting folk like Jeff and Fionn together, they get into the detail right away. So, enjoy. And the uh, link to the post is in the show notes. If you want to read that before we get started or while we're getting started, just click through. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. Fionn, it's nice to actually see you. So, yeah, you're keeping well. Yeah, really well. Yeah, loving being in, in Dundee. And I'm glad to be back in Scotland. Yeah, um, I I like Dundee. I've not been enough times. I had a friend uh, who was at university there. Um, and um, we were up in, myself and Dan, were, where we met, we were students in Stirling. Oh, yeah. We went to university. And um, yeah, I went up to Dundee the odd time. It's a lovely spot, you know. It is. It's very underrated. I mean, I'm I'm sitting in my study and I'm looking out to see, you know, it's just got one of the best prospects of, most cities in Britain, to be honest, maybe apart from Plymouth or Southampton, it's such a lovely south-facing hill. Okay. So, you know, it's a south-facing hill onto the estuary. So you mm. get the microclimate of the estuary, which is yeah. why I think it's warmer than Edinburgh, even though we're north of Edinburgh. And you get this lovely south-facing hill, which means, you know, solar city. So All that radiant heat as well. Yeah, it's like... um. There's an architect, John Moorhead, who I'd be very close to. He talks a lot about this. And, you know, obviously there's there are some snake oil people out there in in some of the infrared systems that are being sold in terms of how they're applied at times. Um, but it can work 
very well to heat the person rather than the building, you know, within reason. But it's that thing. Uh, infrared is particularly good for warehouses and and sort of factories. It's I'm not convinced for housing yet, but you know. do you know where I think it's interesting potentially? So the thing, the critical thing, obviously, with with something like infrared is that you've got to ensure that you're keeping the building warm to a level where you're not going to have condensation problems, right? So that that's the so it kind of has to go hand in hand with good fabric. But I'm really interested in specific applications like say nursing homes where uh you have two distinct this is just my own pull this out of my arse now in fairness so it could be completely we, we, we did discuss it when we had uh john Moorhead on the podcast as well last year oh did we did we okay so you might be recounting a, a half memory and yeah. claiming uh, it as your own for me i'm claiming this one right <laughs> it sounds completely logical jeff because as you say you've got all different kinds of people in care homes from very extreme fragile to actually not too bad well this is it so there's that as well but but what i'm specifically thinking about is the difference between some of the more vulnerable people who are prone and sat in uh, in specific locations of course you want to uh, encourage them to be as mobile as possible so if you take that into account too but you've got them on one hand with very high thermal comfort requirements and then you've got the staff there who are sweating like mad uh lugging people around you know in in a building that's maybe being kept at 23 24 degrees or more so the idea of being able to ingeniously create sort of two different micro indoor indoor climates uh within one room even wonderful well, and when you're where when you're warehousing the sick as hospitals are nowadays they all have different needs yeah. well, i mean i'm thinking when my mum was in hospital 5 years ago now and uh you know, she needs the place to be hot and people around her don't need it to be hot. And she yeah. was the one by the window. If you can leave all the windows open, keep it well ventilated and keep someone like my mum content, like Jesus, that's, and it's an efficient way of heating. Uh, Why hasn't it happened? Well, we know. <laughs> <laughs> I think infrared is a problem. It is a problematic thing though, because if you, if you over rely on it, uh, people, t- people tend to look for quick fixes and simple solutions and if you over rely on it it is only 100 percent efficient you know um whereas a heat pump if you're going electrical can be 300 percent or more uh efficient depending on how it's set up so it needs new there's nuance with these things that need that needs really good design and care and how these things are actually specified you know and they, they need to be used appropriately like tanya jennings when she was on the podcast last year she or this might have actually just been a conversation i can't remember now so where she was working at Ealing, she, they started specifying infrared wallpaper to heat people in their homes because it worked. And mm. it was an easy measure to, a relatively easy measure to install. So it, it made sense there. But the, the best application she recounted was her tiny bathroom in which she couldn't put a heater, but it was freezing. Oh, that's <laughs> excellent. I mean, you, you can throw in the embodied carton stuff as well because... Yes. It sounds like infrared's going to be a lighter load. I don't know, but it sounds like it might be a lighter load. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, that could well be the case. I'd I'd love to, all these things, I'd love to number crunch them, actually. Because we do, there's some pretty good French data available on um, quite a range of, of building services equipment. Uh, they're, they're not EPDs, it's a similar thing called the, the PEP or Product Eco Passport. And they've got, you know, anything... Uh, from you know heat pumps and boilers and ventilation systems, quite a quite a reasonable range of them, growing range of them, through to bloody 
you know plug sockets and stuff you know like uh, so they're, they're getting really? quite a bit really? of engagement which is it's really important because you can see i just i love the fact that like while you can be accused of focusing too much on the numbers being able to actually quantify these things it's just it's really enlightening for me you know yeah so. no it's good stuff well I, this is quite an apposite start to the conversation infrared in particular because because of its status as an easy measure, easy-ish measure to apply, and it being a really versatile one and a relatively low cost. The reason why we invited Bjorn on today was, I mean, the reason why I got in touch with you was because I saw that post that you put on about a month ago, uh, criticizing Fabric First, or it was a picture of really badly installed external wall insulation. Uh, it's the one with. It's got the lintel, the the thermal bridge through the. I remember. They, oh, they, Jesus. they put the, you know, they put the <laughs> external insulation very, very tidily all the way around the lovely stone lintel, and it was just a classic, you know. Utterly <laughs> <laughs> bonkers, absolutely absurd. So your post was this is why, and we'll put the the post a link to the post in the show notes. Uh, this is why fabric first as a blanket approach to retrofit is not always the best solution. Shite work. Yeah. Some properties will do better with cheaper renewable energy heating options without the expensive faff of additional external wall insulation, lack of construction skills and building physics understanding, which is massive in the industry. Just massive. We need to tackle the low hanging fruit first. And that's the bit that really resonated with me. That's what I, I thought I wanted us to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of contextual facts to just throw in right at the beginning, and I mean, I think a lot of people think that we've kind of done the low hanging fruit. And, <laughs> I mean, I was really shocked to find that nine million homes still don't have roof insulation. Yeah. I mean, really? You know, nine million, and you know, I wasn't so surprised to hear that. 30% of cavity walls are still not filled. But even so, you know, that's pretty shocking as well. I mean, it, it may be that they're in exposed areas, but it may well be they've just not been tackled. But the, the roof insulation one really bothered me. And it kind yeah. of just got me thinking, you know, about how our systems are kind of not really set up to do the, what I'd call the dental work of housing retrofit. You know, the systems are very set up to do kind of scale up mass solutions. And I mean, that slide, that photo that I showed of um, in Dundee of the Dundee City Council's retrofit work, I mean, that was a scaled up solution for a, a, a sort of 1930s, 1940s, I can't remember which, but, you know, it was an old council estate. And it was just a solution kind of laid on rather than than going in there and really forensically looking at the buildings and and doing a thorough and actually knowing what you're doing well and, and, and that's, that's the wicked part of the problem i mean there, there there's several different ingredients to a successful retrofit and and the first is you know having the skill set to do it and you know the fact that we're kind of telling ourselves that we need anything up to three quarters of a million people retrained or trained anew to do this stuff is mind-boggling but you know, even if you take that figure with a pinch of salt and halve it, you know, you're still looking at sort of three hundred and fifty thousand tradespeople uh, to be trained. And the trouble is, 
the trajectory for that training that the Climate Committee have put on it is ridiculous because they've kind of stretched it into the next 10 years, whereas in the same breath, we know that we're kind of going to exhaust our carbon budget set by the Climate Change Committee within the next six years in the UK. Mm. Yeah. On the current trajectory. So, so it is a wicked problem. It's like we haven't got the skill set. We're not doing the diagnostics. You know, we, to use the metaphor, we haven't got the dentists. We're, we're not doing the dental inspection. Um, um, Backstreet dentists, you know. Would yeah. you mind expanding that metaphor a little for folk who haven't heard I was just it about to, yeah, awesome. yeah. So, I mean, I can't claim to be the author of the idea of doing dental work in buildings. I mean, that really comes from the conservation specialists who always had that mindset of doing very careful dental work on on precious existing buildings. That mindset hasn't translated across to retrofit. And what it basically means is you treat each building as a kind of unique set of teeth, if you like, a unique mouth. And, you know, you go in there and, you know, that mouth is very individual. It's It's had a very unique history of chewing and eating and, you know, a very unique history of things affecting it. And, you know, as the dentist, you've kind of got to go in there and look at each tooth, both individually yeah. and also how they're interacting with each other. And then what you're trying to do if you're a good dentist, if you're a good dentist, you don't do what a lot of councils are doing at the moment, which is rip out all the teeth and put in a set of dentures. <laughs> you don't do that. You know, what you do is you look at the whole mouth and the teeth holistically. And you say, okay, what are the kind of optimal interventions we can do here that are going to improve the culture, the function of the mouth, and, and give it some longevity, but kind of not destroy everything, you know, recognize what's there. And that's where you start getting your fillings and, you know, your little bits of individual tooth work. And it's all very, very carefully done. And we, we just haven't got that mindset in the retrofit industry at all. The other thing about dentistry is they have a set of dental records. You know, they make a set of dental records for you and they try and make sure those get passed on. And of course, you know, in the building industry, we don't have dental records. Yeah. We we don't have any records at all because we don't have building passports for materials. That's coming though. At least at least in Europe. That's coming. Yeah. Well, if you I don't know if we want to go down that wormhole. I mean, I've got some real issues with the way the building passports are being developed. Because, again, they still seem to be predicated very much on doing all the digitizing, the kind of algorithmic and manual digitizing of the components, rather than the components themselves actually being the label. The, the kind of nirvana we had when I was looking at this back in 1992 with Howard Little, the amazing Howard Little from Gaia. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we we published a, a a government paper on on building for design and deconstruction and reuse, and we were working with Thornton K from Salvo. And you know, thirty years ago, we were saying, "Look, guys, we need a barcode," and we'd look to BRE and you know Susie Hobbs and other guys and saying, "Look, can you produce this barcode? Because if we've got this barcode, this indestructible barcode, we're cooking." But it's never happened. And so the industry has gone the other way, which is to create itself an enormous amount of extra work and lots of jobs, which is to say, well, let's make this really complicated. Let's create a whole digital twin archive of all these materials, which has to be carefully curated and cultivated and updated alongside the material. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just, from my point of view, conceptually, as a kind of strategy, I'm sorry, it's a piece of pish, and I'm not going to be popular, but it's it's a piece of pish to me because, you know, it is just creating an awful lot of extra admin. And as we know, the weakest link in admin is when the binary of digital goes yes, no. Mm. The beauty about actually having the barcode on the fabric is you could again look at it holistically in the moment on the site or wherever it is and deal with the situation in reality. Mm. So sorry about that wormhole digression. It's very no, no, it's no, interesting. No. I, I, that's, that's what this show's all about. Really, uh, this podcast is all about isn't it? Show <laughs> myself. Can I ask a question about that? You're drawing a distinction between their approach and what you're recommending. Is that yeah. that the the individual component in use within the fabric would have its own unique reference? Yeah, and and the difficulty we've had, the reason why it's remained a holy grail, is it is quite hard, you know, to make indestructible barcodes. I mean that 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 is a challenge. Uh, it's not a challenge if you're reusing stuff and you have a kind of an agreement about where you place the barcode. But of course, it disappears as soon as you get into any kind of recycling. Um, but where do we keep it then? I mean, I, I just want to understand this. Um, if I go into a building that was works were done on it 10 years ago or whatever, where, where, where would I find the barcodes? Okay, so let's take a steel structure. So, I mean, we know from the work that Bedzed did on, on reuse of steel that the, the critical thing is the center of the steel beam. Right. And so you obviously don't put the marker on the ends because you're going to chop, you're going to thermal lance the ends off in order to get your reusable steel beam. So it clearly has to be somewhere in the middle. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very much the case for timber as well, that you don't want to put marker anywhere near the ends of the timber because a they're the ones that they're the bits that degrade the quickest but also they're the bits that tend to be bolted clamped whatever so it's it's that kind of zone somewhere in the middle but as i say you know it's it's i think people gave up on it and i I mean i like i like it uh, but i don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive ideas uh they could be they could be mutually reinforcing the thing the thing is that we're, they we're, seem to be mutually exclusive, Jeff. I'm well, they, not well, they hearing should, well, could, any research going on about the barcode. Conceptually, and, they shouldn't be. I mean, is my is my point right? Um, uh, and um, uh, I would want to know if I'm buying a house that was built a few years ago. I would want a surveyor to be able to tell me exactly how it was built, um, without having to start pulling the, the building apart, right? So, so, and we are now getting into an, an era where, in Ireland, for instance, uh, we have—I uh, presume you have something similar in the, U- in the UK. It's imperfect, but we have a system called the Building Control Management System, whereby all of the documentation for a project, well, a lot of it at least, is meant to be uploaded onto a central, you know, portal. Yeah, um, it's like the digital twin. I mean, we, we've got that happening with a lot of buildings where you, you know, you create a literal digital twin of of, of the building, and yeah. and that's a good thing. My point is that that digital twin is very hard to to keep up. Yeah, it's right because because buildings change. That's a very good you, point. You know, the beauty. I mean, you could certainly have that digital twin as a, a starting point, I suppose. But you know, just to know that within five years it's redundant. Um. Yeah. Whereas the thing about the the branding thing is, if if we knew where those markers were, you know, mm. you could get that initial set of documentation. But then, whenever you do any DIY and you know where to look for these markers, you're on it. Well, yeah. there are 
so uh, shout out to Raf, uh, Bowtie, uh, Raf Delamita, and Demolata, I think it is. I think it's Demolata, his surname. All right. I'm yeah. going to stop you, uh, Dan, is developing form in the, in the best traditions of English people, English men, uh, for um, and men probably mainly um, for mispronouncing people with uh, with uh, foreign names. <laughs> yes, uh, well, I'm probably getting it wrong too, but but um, which would just add to it. But anyway, but, like any any excuse to pick holes. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> we've 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 gone on to reuse, and I kind of want to stick with the the low hanging fruit stuff. There is a connection in the. Raf has produced, or he's in the midst of developing a platform called Know Your Home, which is like a car log book for homes, where you log what works are done to a home, the paperwork, including the point in time information about the components that are used in upgrading a home. And that sort of a platform is perfect, whether you're thinking long-term or short-term. I, I, you know, I wish it was. I really wish it was. I mean, the trouble is all my experience of working with housing associations over the last Oh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, you know, and big housing developers like Crest and Barrett and Stuart Mill, Mill God bless Stuart Mill. I'm sorry they've got the troubles they've got, but fantastic outfit. But, you know, these guys, they've already got a lot of these kind of admin systems, supposedly, to keep up with their stock. And it just falls over. So often it falls over and it comes back to the binary. You know, it just comes back to the inputter. And the trouble is very often the inputter is working at a very low grade scale. You know, it's not an intelligent job. And literally one zero and you're knackered. So, you know, I want the resilience of a system where you scan a QR code and it brings up what it is. You know, I don't want someone to be constantly doing one zero or the algorithms to be doing one zero. Well, the reason why I reference Know Your Home, because again, it's a new-ish platform it is they're going through their first cedars funding round at the moment and i've encountered it in the wild in enfield like when we were going reviewing properties there and you go around the building and this is this is uh measures so heating ventilation you can scan the qr code it tells you what the crack is i mean it is imperfect because always works first time always works first time it's it's the consequences all of these things and i agree with you they do fail like getting things wrong is part of the process where you're creating a technological solution to a practical problem so you're gonna have failure you have i mean if if i get really dark about this and i'm gonna get dark in this conversation (laughs) um (laughs) no if i get really dark about this and if we go to capitalism and all the built-in obsolescence yeah, yeah. It's a, a mindset within the industry that works against things continuing. And, you know, it, it, it really works against the idea of, of being able to find out what buildings are about because, you know, within any kind of digital system, there's, there is this built-in obsolescence and even the legacy curation that's supposed to ensure that you can switch from one platform to the other is so glitchy. Mm. But, you know, with, again, within five years, it's really dodgy. So, I like WYSIWYG, you know, I like what you see is what you get. I, I suppose I've done too much self-build retrofit myself. And, you know, when I was an architect, being on site, seeing how dirty places get and, you know, just how, how robust any kind of system has to be. You know, it has to be a system where you can throw the boot at it and it, it picks itself up again. And and that's why I say this barcoding holy grail, you know, we still haven't found the indestructible barcode but you know let's keep let's keep looking for it let's yeah 
But guys, you know, on this retrofit thing, I was just thinking back to something I was sharing with people a, a couple of years ago, which is I think Letty have done some fantastic work in London on, you know, highlighting good retrofit practice with their guides. And I'd always all hail to Letty. They do amazing yeah, work. Great. But, but they do know that I have debates with them about their guides. And, you know, one of their guiding principles is to, you know, reduce the energy first and prioritize health. My first bit of guidance is check whether you need to do anything at all. Yeah. yeah. Or whether you just need to walk away and do a, a strategic withdrawal on retrofit. Because it may be that there's another solution. It may be that the building needs to be something else, or it may be that the people need to be something else. Yeah. But you know, how many retrofits start with that statement? Should we actually do anything? Well, here? well this this is it. We we talked a bunch of times in the podcast. And I would love to have them on. About, I'm sure you're familiar with their work because they're very celebrated now. But they're the poster boys or poster children for this kind of approach is Lacaton and Vassal. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, lovely, yeah. lovely. Um, yeah. So that that principle of of Trying to do yourself out of a job, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, well, uh, that's the that's the best approach for unpicking any brief. Like the brief. So Jeff and I were uh, messaging about a brief this morning, and the first question, the first thing I'm inclined to do is unpick all of the assumptions in the list of deliverables. Like, can we? Should we even try and do any of this now? Yeah. Like, because yeah. I don't think we should. Because we def. I know from my experience doing stuff in all my supreme arrogance. I know we are ignorant. I know we don't know enough to be able to do an adequate job. And we need to look at, so this is analogous. We need to look at the, uh, the resources available to us, the perceived priorities and the politics, because we need to know who needs to be made happy, who needs stroking. Yeah. Because unless we recognize those, someone could draw the, draw the project to a swift end. Or cease funding or well, something. Well, this is it. And I think as well, back to something you said at the start, Fiona, about um, the number of uninsulated roofs and cavities and so on. And I was listening to uh, the friend of the podcast, Simon Jones's podcast over the weekend, uh, which is well worth checking out. Um, and there was one particular episode where they were talking about radon in buildings. And Simon mentioned the fact that uh, in Ireland, and I have to confess I was oblivious to this, there's... A phenomenon where quite a lot of people, once you've identified that there's a radon problem in their building, um, and you offer them supports for remedial action, I think I think fully funded in some cases, some people won't take it up. Mm -hmm. now, that's fascinating, you know. So understanding the psychology of that too. Absolutely, um, the context is all. I mean, and there could be very very good reasons why they don't want to take it up. I mean, it's a it's a real struggle this thing with with retrofit and and the kind of housing providers because. I guess my cry for help in that post about the, the external wall insulation is that very good people, you know, passive house experts, excellent housing providers, people who've really got good intentions, as far as I'm concerned, are paving their way to hell at the moment because we've got this kind of notion of benefit as an extreme at one end and the, the sort of must do the all the measures to make it work or must at least have a plan to do all the measures. And, you know, some housing is so quirky. I mean, Lisa yeah. Pascali is really good on this stuff, actually. Shout yeah, out yeah. to Lisa. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's been through it on in the same way as I did. She's been through it on her own house trying to retrofit and 
get it working. And I always remember a conversation with her when she was giving us a talk when I was head of school at um, Sheffield School of Architecture. She came up and did a wonderful talk on the kind of retrofit work stroke BPE work she was doing. And, you know, we just talked about the endless difficult detailing that comes up in housing. And again, this kind of uniqueness of all the different detailing and all the hidden unknown unknowns, you know, was the house built correctly, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the the kind of industry solution to all that is, and I hear it every day is, well, if you put an overcoat on it, you solve everything, don't you? You know, if, if you if you put this tea cozy on it, all your thermal bridging issues will be solved. You know, if you if you do your air tightness barriers and all this kind of everything will be solved. And I just sort of think, actually, guys, we need to be a lot, lot more pragmatic about this. Because if we're not, we are going to really create an enormous resource burp and carbon burp. I'm going to cite another hero of mine who's a guy called Ronald Rovers. Oh, he's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've done a podcast with him. You No, we haven't yet. No. You but, must. Yeah, you he's must. on the list. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful iconoclast. And <laughs> I, I did an interview with him for my book, you know, my um, Housing Fit for Purpose book. And he was just wonderful. And he, he gave me an epiphany, um, which I, I shared with Dan the other day. Um, he stopped me in my tracks because we were talking about retrofit and energy sprong and, and all his fights with energy sprong to to get them to realize that actually uh, some of what they were doing was 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 maybe not quite right in terms of, you know, the heavy overcoat stuff. Yeah. Um, and that maybe actually if they focused more on the solar, they they would get a better return, solar panels and stuff. Anyway, he said to me, you know, when we talk about carbon reduction and reducing carbon emissions the mindset we're in the conceptual mindset we're in is that somehow in the building industry if we have a payback of i don't know three to ten years on anything you know we are going to be saving carbon and he stopped me in my tracks and said you do realize that every action we do in the building industry adds carbon and, you know, his point was, we are at the carbon threshold. It's not in the future. It's now. Yeah. And so everything we do in the building industry, and this comes back to my original point about walk away, mm-hmm. everything we do in the building industry should be literally about minusing carbon, minusing. So where that takes you to with retrofit is you have to store carbon. So where that takes you to is the absolute essential need for us to have biomaterial strategy for retrofit. It just has to be biomaterials. I mean, there is just no question. It has to be biomaterials. Because I'm sorry, if you start getting into the circular economy as a, a way yeah, of justifying yeah. the plastics and all the rest of that shit, <laughs> you know, it it has to be a bioeconomy because the bio stuff eats up the carbon. I'd be very careful about that too, though. It's it's important. But um, any any kind of an argument, people will, a lot of people will take it to its extreme. And the the logical conclusion of of the kind of bio based arguments a lot of the time is let's deforest our way to saving the world. Well, yeah. no, no. I mean, I I know you are much more nuanced than that. that. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, and I it's, think it's, but there, there's a risk that people can can quickly yeah, come. To we have to communicate that because yeah. you know, I mean, I've spent most of my life teaching bioregionalism and you know a, a biomaterial approach to architecture. And, mm. uh, you know, there are so many win-wins from food food waste. I mean, straw is such a great example. 
Yeah. You know, we can build half a million homes in Britain with straw each year if we wanted to, just with the waste. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that frightens people, I think there are three myths that we have to bust on on biomaterials. And the first myth is three little piggies. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and that is I'll blow your house down if it's made of straw. If it's wood, it's no good. And the only thing that's good is stone. So that's the first one we have to blow. We just send everyone over to Norway and say, go and have a look at the housing in Stavanger or Bergen and come back and tell me that timber doesn't work. And the staff churches, I'm always going on. About you know, I mean, I'll tell you what, go down to Abingdon near Oxford and yeah. have a look at the 400-year-old oak armhouses there. Yeah. And, you know, 400-year-old timber. Hello. Yeah, yeah exactly. But the That's second the myth, sorry, the second myth on this. So the first myth is, you know, three little piggies. The second myth is the eco one, which is the what aboutery? You know, what about the food? What about the savannah? All the rest of it. What aboutery relies on that taking to extremes argument? Yes. Mm -hmm. Nobody's taking anything to extremes here. Mm -hmm. What we're just saying is if you look at the minuscule amount of biomaterial that is in insulation industries, mm. you know, and let's, you know, let's go back to woolly sheep or whatever, but, you know, Flax, hemp, straw, you know, wood fiber, yeah. waste wood fiber, whatever yeah. the hell it is. Let's get going. But you see, the third myth about all this is the way that the whole biomaterial argument is set up as just being a kind of cottage industry. It's not proven, it's not tested, bloody, bloody, blah. That's the third myth we have to bust. You know, there's plenty of well-tested, robust, durable biomaterial technology. What's well, we working against it? Invested interests in the oil industry. Yeah. Oh, man. It, <laughs> that's always the answer. Man, you ask enough questions the, the, about something bad, the, the end result answer is always capitalism, in my experience. To your point about the, the natural materials, we interviewed, so we will be publishing uh, an episode, a conversation, not an interview, with Will Kirkman of Eco Merchant, I think today. And he said business is booming in that space now. There are real signs that something is afoot, something is changing. But to your point, like, but, you're, but it's, it's booming from a very low level. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, of where uh, natural fiber is. It's minuscule. It's minuscule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the but big the, guys like, out there are polystyrene, mineral wool, you know, styrofoam. And these guys are not going to give up without a fight. Oh, no, absolutely not. But... I'm just drawing attention to the fact that I'm not suggesting the the war is won. The you know there's barely a skirmish. There uh, are green shoots. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. I think you. But the the bit that I find most interesting in that is that he described it being from a, a consume or he described consumer sentiment being open to it rather than rejecting it because one of the problems with oil age architecture is that people have been trained by the vested interests to expect oil rack nothing else will do and that is you know this is uh not no, i was gonna i'll scratch that i was gonna do a three little pigs analogy but <laughs> expectation you need right so you need 20 percent of the population to convert uh, a political system to fascism now if we can get 20 percent of the people to convert to natural building materials that would be a much better outcome that would be a great start national socialism and it doesn't feel like the 
Like there are all sorts of green shoots which could be harnessed to make this work. I mean, again, like for like indie nature, they've got their BBA certification for hemp insulation. They're receiving positive feedback from all the people involved. Now, they're still being kept out of the markets in some circles by the vested interests. You know, tower blocks still reluctant to use hemp in favor of things that will go up in flames in rather than smolder. I see a tower block, you know, I wouldn't start there. I mean, I was insulating tower blocks back in the early 90s and uh, demolished one as well. Tower blocks, I wouldn't start there because actually they're one of the most energy efficient forms. You know, uh, if you look at a flat, it's only got one exposed surface area and mm-hmm. the other, other five are all insulated. So this this idea of going after tower blocks, I mean, well, again, if I want to get really dark, there's a fantastic novel by Doris Lessing called Mara and Dan. And I urge anybody reading, listening to this to read it because she is just so prescient about buildings and what's going to happen to them. And, you know, in this science fiction story, the, the tower blocks become, well, you probably saw it with, with that movie as well with um, Tom Hiddleston. High Rise. Yeah, remember? The Ballard. Yeah, High Rise, yeah. MG Ballard. Well, she, she does that on a city basis. So she basically, she does climate change. Everybody migrates. All the technology breaks down. Nobody has the instructions for how to use any of it anymore. The high-rise blocks in the center of cities become no-go mafia uh, gangster zones that are always pitch black. So, you know, if I'm really dark, high-rise is on its way out. And, you know, it's not a good thing to be insulating because actually as a building form, it's it's a death zone. And it will be a death zone with climate change. You know, we we need to be migrating out of tower blocks. And, you know, you know where I'm coming from. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sue Rofe and I have been on the same page on this one for probably about 30 years. But, you know, going going back to this kind of thing of picking the right thing to work with, I mean, the biomaterials is one area. But the other one that really puzzles me, and this is me working directly with housing associations, who are, you know, I like to think of the good guys in, in retrofit. But this package that they feel they have to go for you know we have to go for the triple glazed windows really you don't you know (laughs) but double glaze might be good enough and in fact maybe you just want secondary glazing to actually minimize the carbon burn so you get this package of must be triple glazing must be external insulation where we can if we can't must be internal insulation must do all the fabric first stuff and my my experience on my own house, my 1930s house here in, in Dundee, it's an absolute pig to put external insulation on because it's got so many bloody pipe bits and sticky yeah. out bits and all the rest of it. So the first thing I did when I arrived here was bung on the solar, bang it on. And, you know, people can tell me it's it's green glitch or green glitz or whatever. I know how, a, you know, little would be ringing in my ears saying, eco bling, eco bling. The fact is that, you know, solar is now paying itself back in five years. And even with a battery, it's making sense now. And yes, I mean, the embodied carbon can be, can be an Achilles heel for PV. You know, I mean, it's in fairness, it's, I think it still probably stacks up anyway, but some of the no, figures I'm, seen Sorry, on, Jeff, I'm going to challenge you on that one. If you stack up the embodied carbon on PV, yeah. it's got a quicker payback now, too. It depends. Um, it depends on the PV. I mean, we've been doing well, cal- and, we've been and doing cows, and, and it's and it's a consideration that people should have. We've seen so so many examples. But uh, no, I don't. I don't want to go down that. It depends what okay. battery. I want to say that solar is the future, 
Okay. And, you know, that, that's a go-to place for retrofit in terms of getting energy. I mean, I, I put these 10 panels on, put a battery in. I was absolutely stunned with the returns I was getting. Stunned. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not just in the summer, in the winter. It can be a great yesterday. Hello. Yeah. You know? I think it can be a great technology and an important one. Um, I don't think this is what a battery. I think it's just a question of actually considering considering this because the design, the, the specification decisions uh, you make with with PV, for instance. The last time I checked, um, we were finding some panels that were four times higher embodied carbon than others, for instance, right? Just depending on where they came I from. I hear you. Right? No, I um, hear you. You definitely I need to even... pick the right product, for sure. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to put people off on this podcast no. saying, you know, there's bad products out there. I mean, there's bad products everywhere. There's also very good products. But well, I mean, they might even be good products, but it's just that, that no one's looking, uh, by and large, the market's not looking at things like embodied carbon. So actually uh, getting into a understanding where the products are coming from and forcing manufacturers to engage on this and to think about their their, their manufacturing pros. I'm 100% with you. I mean, I well, did first embodied carbon calculation on energy efficiency measures, again, back in 1992 for the Scottish government. Right. So you know, and I've 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 supervised a PhD on redefining how we actually calculate embodied carbon. So I'm really with you on the embodied carbon argument. I think you're probably right. I think the renewable energy sector is probably behind the curve compared to the insulation sector on the embodied carbon stuff, and and that's certainly something they should should wise up on. All I'm doing here is just feeding back to people that. It's not always fabric first. You know, no. for me, I saved a lot more energy, money, resource, whatever, carbon by putting the panels on. Well, you both speak in there to the need for appropriate levels of expertise when making decisions because the solutions are out there. Not all the solutions that are offered are going to be appropriate. So, to your point about the right sort of windows to use for any sort of retrofit, you don't necessarily need to replace for triple glaze. That's fine. You can find perfectly adequate solutions you don't need necessarily you don't need to achieve that last 10 percent, which can be the most costly in all sorts of terms i mean very be. often secondary secondary glazing is not something people like to talk about because it's got a bad rep yeah uh, you know from the past of being um poorly done but good secondary glazing systems now i mean i, I was working with save and glaze in perth you know who had a an amazing uh what do you call it patented uh secondary glazing system that was hydrophobic in the best way so it mm -hmm. actually the panel actually absorbed condensation and you know fitted this into a listed building in newborough and you know it was georgian sash windows the sash windows were all beautifully sealed and restored and whatever and then we put the secondary glazing on amazing difference now the alternative to that would have been to take that georgian building and put in look-alike georgian double glazing treble glazing which would have created a much bigger impact. I think there's a lot to learn. You know, talking about different cultures, I, I think there's a lot that the retrofit community could learn if they held more workshops with conservationists. You know, I always think that the conservationists, many of them were the first ecological designers because they're the dentists. You know, they, they always look at the big picture. Many conservationists have an innate understanding of building physics. They understood the whole mm -hmm. moisture movement issue way before Neil May published his white paper with the British standards on managing moisture in buildings. 
But for some reason, and I, I never understand this, for some reason we have our tribes. You know, we have the passive house tribe, and now we've got the past 2035 tribe, you know, and we have the housing association tribe. And I mean, some people are, are talking about the coming barbarism, you know, that's coming with climate change. But I do see a kind of a need to challenge that kind of barbarism in, in the building industry and, and just say, look, actually, guys, we need to be a little bit more savvy here and learn from each other much more. It's a hard thing to do because it actually means learning another language. Well, it means listening too. And listening. I mean, I, I learned so much from a sadly departed friend of mine and colleague, uh, Jackie Goddard, who led the, uh, I think it was the New South Wales or Queensland National Trust in Australia. Amazing woman. You know, she introduced me to conservation back in 1995. And I ran a joint sustainability conservation teaching unit with her where she was the conservationist and I was the eco designer and when you put the two of us together it was so powerful because we were learning from each other the students were learning from both of us and we were developing this kind of eco conservation consciousness and i think until the retrofit industry picks up on that um it's going to keep doing business as usual which is the mass scale up you know one size fits all do a street all at once retrofit approach. Have you looked at um, what the AECB have been doing recently with their new retrofit standard? Um, yeah, it's more nuanced. It's it's getting better. They're, they're, I think, trying to come at it from this position of pragmatism. It's extraordinary that they've been allowed to use the PHPP software to do that. Um, and I should say, hot tip to the Passive House Institute in this regard, because they are on record as saying that Enerfit is not always the solution. You know, so there is. I think there's a recognition there that that, that can be the case. One of the things I I like about uh, some of the sorts of tools that are beginning to emerge, and and uh, the AECB uh, through Tim Martell have um, it's under resourced, but a very useful tool, uh, uh, PH Ribbon, is that they're admittedly in this case just through the prism of carbon, so it's limited in that regard. There's a bunch of other considerations we need to have too. You can look at the whole life carbon figures for a building. So taking account of everything that goes into the materials and so on, and also grid decarbonization scenarios, so that you're starting to be able to see the sorts of scenarios that might emerge. And there's uncertainty with all these things, of course there is, but it's just enabling you to inform your own thinking, understand, well, is that a sensible approach? Or I, I think one... Tim's work is wonderful. I mean, I remember you and I and Tim having conversations years ago about the ribbon and, you know, how to move it on. And, you know, I think it's it's a wonderful tool. And, you know, like you say, it's desperately under-resourced. And, you know, I love these tools that do try and look at big picture. You know, they're, 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 really, they're really helpful. And it's great to see the Passive House community taking a bit more notice. I mean, it's still not in the standard, of course. But you know, a bit more notice of the embodied carbon discussion, and I won't do it either. There, well, I could be wrong. My understanding of the institute's approach to this, which is probably technically correct, but but uh, like this this uh, ship has sailed, is that we should be focusing focusing on embodied energy, not embodied carbon. And I understand that um, because you know, if I talk about the PV example I mentioned to you, it was uh, a, a panel where the the uh, ingot was uh, and the wafer was was made in Norway um, mm -hmm. using hydro, which is not 
perfect environmentally. There are issues with hydroelectricity, obviously, too. You know, how much more energy efficient and resource efficient the, the manufacturing actually is compared to uh, the, the more polluting panel that was made in China? I don't know. I've so. kind of changed my mind on this, Jeff. I mean, I've come 360 degrees and um, maybe it's 180, actually. But, you know, I, I think it's so important in this kind of era of rapid change to be incredibly flexible and reflexive as well. Yeah. And, and be prepared to change our minds. And I mean, I spent decades advocating for embodied energy. My 1992 um, study of housing efficiency measures in Scotland was in terms of their embodied energy. I've now moved across to embodied carbon, you know, and it, it's just because I think the whole carbon cycle, I'm coming at it from the other end. I mean, I'm mm. in that dark space. I am just so terrified by the carbon agenda. I mean, even last week, Last week was my nightmare come true, which was, you know, that AMOC is definitely on the way. Yeah. And that the all the trajectories that the Climate Committee have been putting out as, as nice little lines that go like this, you know, or like this. And they're all hockey sticks. And we always knew they would be hockey sticks in terms of, you know, the exponential acceleration of climate change. And it's, yeah. it's that exponential exponentiality that has given me a real urgency around the carbon agenda. So I know all the arguments about why we should be looking at embodied energy. But for me, the kind of the bottom line is what carbon are we taking out? You know, if we use a ton of energy, I don't care. I just want the carbon down. But just make yeah. just make sure that we don't consider uh, biomass to be, you know, zero carbon in that con burning biomass. You know, uh, oh, it's, <laughs> it's obviously not zero carbon because it's it's giving out carbon. It's it can't be. That's back to these circular. You know, the other word I really hate is circular economy. Yeah. I hate that word. You know, it's so deceptive and it's just used by the plastics industry. It's a fig leaf. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's used to continue a dead dead products and to continue bad business. I've always hated it. You know, and to be honest, I hate recycling. You know, yeah. I just hate it. And again, if you go back to the conservationists, this is where they're so wonderful and so ahead of the curve um, compared to a lot of retrofit guys is you know, the conservationists are all about reuse, you know, and deconstruction and, and that wonderful thing that they do where they they make changes to a building that are reversible. Now, how many retrofit projects are going ahead today that are reversible? Because the other thing that really frightens me with the retrofit agenda, and the reason I go for the low-hanging fruit and the simple moves and the keep it simple stupid is how often with technology do we build in disaster that is not reversible? Mm. And, you know, do we commit ourselves to a path that we can't get off? Whereas the conservationists, they've always got this mentality that what they're dealing with is so precious as a resource that actually they cannot interfere with that re resource unless they can withdraw from it. Now, if the, if the retrofitters took the same attitude in, in fact, if designers took the same attitude to everything, whether it's computers or, or phones or, or buildings, that attitude of we can, we can pull back, we can reverse, we can reverse engineer, we can reverse our way out of this. Yeah. But so much so, I mean, let's talk glues and retrofit. Yeah. You know, we've got all this stuff about the potato paste and, you know, the bio glues and all the rest of it that are supposedly coming our way. 
And yet every day, in every way, we keep gluing everything with glues that are really difficult to take apart. I know. In the name of sustainable, good, airtight retrofit. And it's a disaster. I think the 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 peak of this perhaps is uh is uh spraying spray foam insulation into into a roof space, you know, into mm-hmm. the roof timbers. Um Yeah. Yeah. No, they're well-made points. You know, right. gen- gentle, let's go into the building gently. And the other thing that worries me about the pass process is I want to be excited about pass. You know, I want to think that 2035, 2038 are the saviors. They're not. They really aren't because they're still Despite all the fantastic work that Peter Rickaby and others are doing, I mean, you know, Peter Rickaby is a real hero of mine. He's, you know, shout out to him for his amazing understanding of of buildings and retrofit and the huge amount of work he's done on the past retrofit standards. But nevertheless, when we were producing the British standard 40101 on building performance evaluation, which I was the deputy chair of for that committee, when we produced that and published that last year, you know, we had a lot of conversations with people about performance, proving performance. And one of the conversations was with past past people because we were working side by side. And, you know, I mean, Peter was very honest. You know, pass as a bottom line is pretty pathetic. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's good as a kind of, you know, stage by stage process. But when it comes to verification, you know, the bottom line is a, a quick chat or a quick survey or, you know, there's really not a lot of monitoring going on. And and that's my big concern with the retrofit industry is they have been made to believe they have a process that is robust. And I don't think the feedback in pass is robust. Well, I, I think there is a there is a problem hidden within what you just said in that there isn't really such a thing as a retrofit industry. There's no coherence of approach. There isn't a single voice. There isn't a single strategy. What we've got is a bunch of people flailing around in the damp and cold, trying to throw sticking plasters over everything they can. And that's what leads to this succession of fuck-ups and (laughs) problems. Um, Well, if you look at uh, Preston, the the, the great Preston retrofit catastrophe. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Those homes still haven't been fixed. And very little has been done to ameliorate a lot of the problems around there. And then you've got other, like, so just looking at Preston, uh, ECD have opened up an office there. James Trainer, I uh, uh, went to meet him there last year and had a chat, and they see opportunity in the area. You've got uh, Osmosis, the retrofit firm who I met at the, whatever that Homes 24 conference was towards the end of last year, uh, at the Excel Center. Osmosis, they're related to David Pierpoint. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Retrofit Academy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he's involved with them. You've got both of those quite different organisations in the same place where the Great Preston Retrofit catastrophe happened. And Preston is a place of abject poverty as well. You know, it's got a couple of beautiful bits. Avonham, gorgeous. A river running through it. I know it well. I worked there for three years. It's an utter shithole, Preston. I went back for the first time when I was up at Christmas to do a bit of Christmas shopping. They've got a Chinese supermarket there, good one. 
So I went to buy I'm, some stuff. I'm not going to say it's, I know shit is a resource. So, but I'm not going to yeah. say that Preston's an utter shithole. I think the the wonderful thing about Preston is the station and the council buildings next to it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That I've worked in for three years, and I also think the Preston bus station was absolutely iconic. It's a magnificent but, building, utterly yeah, hidden yeah. though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh man. Well, but, I I cited Preston because you just with those three or four examples. Oh yeah, throwing the brutalism. The beautiful bu- brutalism. You can see an abject lack of coherence about approaches. And Preston is the center of uh, the Preston model, a methodology for public investment in infrastructure that keeps money and wealth within communities. Like it yeah, focuses yeah. on. I mean, you've got the same initiatives happening in Nottingham and, and uh, Manchester. I'll tell you another, another one that interests me, guys. I just want to tease this out with you a bit is the old air source heat pump versus insulation discussion on low-hanging fruit. Because uh, it's, it's another one that I had with my housing association guys, regular debate about this. I went to a maintenance board meeting the other night and um, you know we were talking about the retrofit measures that are going on. And the absurdity of government policy with the fact that well-meaning housing associations are still replacing gas boilers with new gas boilers. Um, and you know the argument i was putting was look you've got an opportunity here with your maintenance program you could actually in the appropriate circumstances go in with the latest models of air source heat pumps you know which you know there's one that just come out last week which is a a water air to water one which is giving you 70 degrees temperature you know return on radiators you can go in with these and providing you give the guys solar as well you know these these measures can be really really cost effective against against the gas, but, but the, they're yeah, cost they're effective where you have the wherewithal, where you have the expertise. Well, it is. It's, that a, can it's be a money. You're right. It's money up front. I mean, it's true because that's the, that's exactly the argument they put back to me, which was, look, film. We'd love to put in. We'd love to ke- catch up with the curve and 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 you know get the air source heat pumps in. I mean, they're a really good organisation. They they train a lot of guys, and you know they're really on the case. But you're right. I mean, they the government grant doesn't allow them to do that. And you know, this I, is this yeah. is where I'm pointing to the lack of coherence. Yeah. Like. Yeah. So, what's your priority? So, I always come back to impact. Like, having spent a bunch of time working in finance on ESG metrics, all bullshit. Uh, I might add, like impact, stating your impact clearly and providing your own metrics against which you can be judged for the 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 outcomes of the impacts that you've attempted to have. So I prefer that word outcomes to impact. I mm. think impact is quite a male word. You know, it's about kind of impact, banging something. I I like outcomes because it's more suggestive of impact is, is something I would say is a synchronous in terms of time. So an impact only has... I know what you mean. I also hate the word disruptor for the same kind of reasons as well. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I, li- I like outcomes because it's it's diachronic time. It means it's moving through time and it's progressive. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, outcomes-based work is definitely where it's at. But um, the, you know, what I'm getting at is like, all right, so what are the outcomes you're aiming for? Like, is it the person whose boiler's broken down? Is the outcome you want to get them warm again? Or is it decarbonisation? Well, and you, you can only again, you can I, only ever have one. You can't have you know, two Dan, I'm, I'm because there's be no naughty. strategy allowed. No I'm, strategy. I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be naughty again. Going to a dark place. That's a very male perspective. 
And I, I get this so often, this kind of either or binary. Well, no, no, no. This, this isn't. It's not, well, it's not an it's either a, or question. It, well, the way the political and economic structures are set up, which is a male outcome, that is the only choice that you've got because there's no, there is no allowance where councils and local authorities and housing associations, their funding and expertise has been cut to the quick. They don't have room for coherent or proper strategy. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna is... argue against myself here as well, and against against the housing <laughs> again. So, less coherence. Oh no! No, well, no. <laughs> it's it's that thing of coming round in in a circle and yeah, yeah. activity. So the the thing about yes, you're right. Uh, housing associations have been cut to the bone, and they are completely with their backs up against the wall. But what I what I worry about, what I what I see happening is a bunker mentality. So instead of using the crisis as an opportunity, which is what the Chinese do, you know, the crisis always becomes a bunkering down. And actually, the crisis is an opportunity a to to get into the research that would look out of the box that would say actually there may be other ways to fund this. The other bit about the the opportunity from the crisis is to refocus your priorities. Sure, you want to go for comfort. You know, and you want to you want to get all that done. Make sure your people are warm. That's bottom line. But you know, there's a journey here, and it goes right the way back to the beginning of the conversation about infrared heating. Mm. There's a real journey here that housing associations need to get into, which takes them out of their business as usual comfort model, and that is, you know, comfort as retreat and moving away from the idea of of whole house heating, um, and moving into I mean, the argument I put back to them was we also need to think about resilience. And, you know, when things break down, what do you retreat to? How do you keep part of the home operating when the rest of the home can't? And and where that sort of takes you is to a whole different funding strategy, which is like if you're focusing on heating and cooling, it isn't always necessary, necessarily the building. It's the person, right? That's yeah. what we said to begin with. It's This is complicated, though, and it's fraught with risk. I mean, all of this is. Uh, if you take fuel poverty as a subject, for instance, mm, it's, a well known, it's a well-known phenomenon that vulnerable people, elderly people, for instance, are already doing this. They're maybe only heating one room in a house. And this actually can breed increasing kind of social isolation because people are too, they're too embarrassed to have people around to their house because it's too bloody cold, right? And, the, the, and parts of the building can fall into disrepair and so on. It's, it's usually very, too cold if they're not heating the living room. My understanding yeah. is a lot of people are only heating the living room, right? And then it's not so antisocial because you can have people in your living room. I think uh, we should be trying to aim where possible to provide, you know, to ask for more, demand more, and try and create better living conditions for people, you know. I'm going to challenge it, Jeff. I'm going to challenge it. I mean, I live in a house and the the running temperature is 16 degrees and there's no mold. Yeah. And, you know, I use strategies where I keep individual rooms warm as needed. Yeah, uh, and it's fine, and it works, and that's because I understand how to use my house. Yeah, and if you go back to the conservation principle and back to vernacular, this kind of fuel and, and this is going to again upset a lot of people because I'm totally into fuel poverty. I get it. I understand that we need to keep people warm and comfortable. My argument is that we need to destigmatize the vernacular solutions to to comfort. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the past. People used to actually very happily move around from room to room to to get themselves sorted. In the summer, they'd move to one room. In the winter, they'd move to another room. We have lost all this kind of understanding. And and actually, that understanding 
if you go back to Barnaby Calder's book on climate and architecture, mm -hmm. he looks at you know historical notions of of comfort, and you know the big divide comes with fossil fuel. You know, after yeah. fossil fuel, we start losing our brains. We start losing our innate understanding of how to use buildings. And, you know, there's a real argument here to recover how to use buildings differently. And, and I'll give you another example about the, the cold. There's been a lot of research done in Berkeley University, for example, with Gail Brager looking at um, personal heating devices. You know, and of course, that goes back to the Japanese little heat bar that goes under your dining table or your little foot bar or whatever, you know, all these little devices. That's one approach. That's the kind of active heating approach. And then there's the passive insulation approach, which is, mm -hmm. you know, one of the great things that this housing association that I work with does do is they've got a heat team and they are pretty savvy on, on the idea of keeping people warm. So. Yeah. You know, where they can't go in and retrofit a building straight away, they will immediately get in there and do the thermal blankets and do the electric blanket, for example. A thermal electric blanket wrapper for a person is phenomenal. And I do think we have to, for the sake of resilience and also the carbon burp, another part of our retrofit strategy of walking away is, you know, where, where things are really difficult or funding's really tight, you know, we have to look at what we can do to keep people warm. And, you know, we need to cross-sector. We need a much better kind of cross-sector discussion about the ergonomics of heat at the individual level and the building retrofit. I mean, 100%. I mean, what's interesting, so we've just, in the last 10 minutes, we've bounced through a whole heap of different approaches, strategies, outcomes, triggers, and you can't knit them together easily. You know, like, so to your point about uh, the, the the evolution of architecture book that you referenced, like the oil age architecture changed everything. And now we have a building stock which does not enable the sort of, the changing use of a building as you described. Like, few people have that many rooms that they can access. Mm. Like, very limited. So, like, these are... You're absolutely right. These are the things that we should be applying to things like new build, but we've still got a existing building stock for the occupants of which it's for all use. Like unless you're building them summer houses as well in the backyard, out of biogenic materials. That's yeah. not, you know, again, that's thinking out of the box. I mean, sometimes it may be easier to add on a a, a, a small conservatory or something. You know, maybe yeah. easier. I mean, I think of someone someone else, another heroine of mine is Lisa Herschel, who um, wrote a fantastic book about um, thermal delight. And her and Professor Richard Dedeer from the University of Sydney, they've really developed this whole thermal comfort argument, adaptive thermal comfort, which I, 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 I'm not, I know Jeff knows about. I'm not sure how familiar you are, Dan, with. Adaptive thermal comfort is, is basically... Adaptation, you know, it's 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 using fans to cool with. It's dressing yourself appropriately. It's using small devices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's moving around the home. Yes, accepting that some some places can be cooler than others. And again, yeah. the retrofit strategy. I, I don't see that. I mean, building regulations have always traditionally recognised that bedrooms should be cooler than living rooms, and that's you know proven by health research that bedrooms should be cooler than living rooms. 
Yeah, yeah. But we still got this kind of thermal standard of, well, let's get all the temperature up to whatever it is, 21, 20, 19, 18. But it's perfectly the, possible to live at 16 degrees. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. But again, the political and economic environment does not allow for such nuance. So you were, you, we started off the conversation with you being very critical of retrofit at scale because it can't account for that sort of difference. I think the adaptive thermal comfort ideas, so we had Huda El-Sharif uh, on the podcast last year with Andy Simmons. We've got uh, an episode with Susan Rolfe in Great. the bag. Excellent. I have to edit. And yeah. like 100%, I am totally down with that. Yeah. As an approach, I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Our, it has limitations, but yeah, it's, it's, it's valuable not, too. It, it, it's brilliant for new build if you can create the, the main. What's the limitation, Jeff? What's the limitation on well, adapting? Like there are physiological responses, you know, to, to living conditions, right? If, you, if you've got a vulnerable person uh, in very cold conditions, for instance, that, you, you, you adapt, know. you adapt them. I mean, there is no limit to. Uh, you see, this is another one of these. No, but like, you know, like we we had an, an indoor air quality company on the podcast a long time ago talking about um, uh, the temperatures they were logging in uh, during uh, lockdown, I think it was, at stages. Uh, uh, and there, there would have been, there's a lot of data. Kate DeSellencourt wrote a piece for us on this uh, with when, when energy prices started to go crazy. Uh -huh. Some of the temperatures that are being clocked in some housing is, you know, ridiculously yeah. low temperatures like but below 10 degrees doesn't, kind of temperature, it doesn't you know? justify the statement that there are limitations to adaptive comfort there are no limitations to adaptive comfort because the word adaptive tells you that there's no limitation my, my understanding is that is that is that uh and i and i have to to delve deeper into the subject is that uh -huh. uh, it's easier to a point for people to adjust to higher temperatures uh, again, absolutely, 100%. But I mean, the whole beauty of adaptive thermal comfort research is it's not bound by strictures, it's not bound by thou shalt not use a fan, you know, yeah. thou shalt. It, it doesn't do that. It's, it's very pragmatic and vernacular in that it will use what works. In terms of it being an accessible strategy for managing the thermal comfort in your home. That is not practical or practicable for lots and lots of people, though. This is the thing. Like, we're not designing houses for that. We're not adding shading to houses. We don't. I'm going to have to disagree with you, Dan. I mean, a statement like that saying adaptive thermal comfort is not practical for lots of people makes a huge number of assumptions. I mean, the first assumption is that, that people aren't able to change their environments. They are. You know, they're changing them all the time. It's not that it's not practical. It's that people don't know. Well, this, that's, is, that's, this that's, is a part of it that I was going to get to. That's like, totally different from not being practical. You see, the thing, a statement, you have to be so careful with words. I mean, making a statement like something is not practical makes it sound like it practically can't be done. But it's not true. It's not that it's not practical. It's that it's not understood. Right, taking that's an analogous, very different. It's important yeah, yeah. difference. But I think, but I think they can be used synonymously. Like, all right, we. Are, I am happy to concede at the start of that point that all of these things can be done within. The, it is possible to action them. But I know from living in a seventies block of flats that very few people knew how to manage moisture uh, and air quality within those flats. So mold was rough. Now, loads of information about this stuff is available. 
when they complained to the the management company, the management company said, "Well, you never open your windows and you're doing all your washing in the house. So that's why you've got mold." And it was almost impossible for them to learn because I'm thinking of one person in particular because of their, I don't know, because of how they'd been, because uh, of the culture they'd been inculcated in, mm -hmm. because of the practicalities about their job and they weren't home much. So they were in and out of the house. So they weren't the flat. They weren't around to do constant management it doesn't need that. Again, I'm sorry. I mean, the, I did a study on um, just that demographic of people going in and out of their homes because yeah. they're out all day. You can take adaptive thermal comfort measures at the beginning of the day to prevent overheating and come back at the end of the day and find a 10-degree yeah, yeah. difference in thermal change compared to if you hadn't made that measure. I'm perfectly willing to concede it's possible. but like, Well, that's the point. That's the way the culture is... Like there is not the capacity for people to learn and address this stuff. There isn't the facility to I, I disagree. convert hearts and I, minds. I think to there this. is there is the Otherwise capacity. Do better. I, I don't think there's the priority. I think it's seen. I mean, I had a PhD student. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like you know, Jenny. You know, do you know Jenny Briley? Have you guys come across Jenny I, Briley? I know the name, but uh, yeah, she was don't. the CEO of Connect Housing Association in, okay. in Yorkshire. She and I did a PhD together. She she did the PhD. I just supervised it. But we did a PhD on housing associations, maintenance, and ventilation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Five-year PhD on that, where she worked with about five or six different housing associations in Yorkshire, looking at this nexus of what the residents are doing, what the maintenance guys are doing in relation to ventilation. And, you know, it comes back to your point, Dan, about capacity. It wasn't a question of capacity. It was a question of talk to the hand. It, you know, the, the, the residents were perfectly able, you know, once it, once it was explained to them what they could or couldn't do, they were perfectly able to do what they needed to do. The maintenance guys um, were perfectly able to do what they needed to do, but the maintenance guys weren't listening to the residents. Yeah. And the housing associations weren't listening to the maintenance guys because, you know, their customer services and complaints team are on another planet. Yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not about capacities. It's about networking and prioritize. I think we're, we're disagreeing about things we agree about, to be <laughs> honest. I see from my own personal experience, people aren't able to adapt to new ideas. And as a consequence, notions of converting a populace to adaptive thermal comfort strategies. Mm. I mean, it's easy just to stick a tea cozy on all the houses and get them to get them to put up with it being a bit <laughs> warm. What what about that great what about that great learning exercise that it takes sixty times to do something to form a habit? So that's why it takes you two months to stop smoking. So if you think about housing as smoking, you know. Um, that's basically what it's doing is it's it's damaging your health through smoking, whether it's your gas boiler or whatever it is. So, you know, it takes 60 times to do something. I mean, we know this through our I know this through the the ergonomic research I did on user user experience in, in housing and I know exactly how long it takes for people to learn how to do things differently. They can actually learn very, very quickly from each other. Um, particularly through social media networks like Facebook, you know, where you've got a Facebook community and a housing 
community that's had a retrofit project done to it, people can very quickly learn from each other. Sometimes they learn the wrong things. Mostly they learn the right things. But it's all about that being able to take people out of their isolation because this happens a lot with tenants. Mm -hmm. The first thing a tenant thinks is, I've done something wrong. Must be me. The next thing they think is, it's not me. It must be something that, you know, the building or something. The, the true answer is probably a bit of both. But as soon as they get the chance to talk to other people about this stuff, you get this kind of collective intelligence happening around the, the building. And, you know, you suddenly find you've got that heating engineer or the, the, the person who's in the network. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then you get this learning organizational experience. And it's that kind of thing that we need to be doing a lot more in retrofit experience, which is actually empowering people to help each other as well as helping themselves in order to change that habit. And if we don't believe these habits can be changed, Dan, if we seriously be believe that people cannot change their behavior, which of course they can and do all the time, we're lost. So I, I really don't want to go down that kind of people can't change because people do change all the time. You know, 20, 30 years ago, this stuff was just completely useless. Yeah. I think you um, do need to engage your people uh, and you, you do need to make them feel, uh, you know, feel and be engaged, uh, actually involved in the decisions that are being taken. And, and so much. To feel, to feel so a sense much. of ownership. Adrian, Adrian Lehman talks about that people, if they understand the design intent, the forgiveness factor. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so that's that is all really interesting. You can still well, give them solutions that are going to be that that will lend themselves towards easier change and 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 that that, that you know uh, minimize difficulties for them and so on. And I think and I think there's a benefit in that. You know, my criticism is that the system isn't designed to enable that sort of change. The culture all around us. In all its facets, like we're working on a, a retrofit research project, looking at a bunch of properties that have been retrofitted doing resident research. One of the properties, the person who lives in there, they are over the moon. They are absolutely evangelical. So, you know, tea cozy, uh, heat pump, all the, all the usual things, triple glazed windows, like absolutely evangelical, like beside himself with joy. And part of the process meant that the ventilation that was installed into the attic meant that they lost their storage in the attic. And in spite of this person being over the moon with the process and totally on board with managing the, the heat in the house, delighted to learn a new technology, when it came to not fucking about in the attic, he thought, oh, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to shite my stuff back up there and I don't care. I know I've been told not to take the stuff, uh, not to put stuff there, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because... <laughs> They lost their storage. Uh, they had nowhere else to put it. And because the needs weren't met, like an essential need, as it turned out, and the communication about the importance of this wasn't had. Yeah. Like, and I've done all the other things right, so I'm sure I'll be allowed so, to get so away the with big, this one. The big takeaway for me, though, Dan, is co-design. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's like this notion that retrofit should be co-design. I mean, I love the work that Rajat Gupta does where, you know, he goes in and lots of people are doing this now you go in there and you do your pre-audit your pre pre-work with the resident and you actually work directly with the resident to say okay what's your lifestyle how do you live what do you do and if that had happened on that project to the extent of discovering that this guy's attic was bloody sacrosanct it may have been a different story it may not have been but you know i love that idea of you go in there and you actually you, the first thing you do is you examine the mouth you look at the 
the, the whole mouth and you see how it's functioning and you really work with the person to understand them, and to understand the family, actually. I mean, we did a, a great research project back in 2007 where we worked with a whole family inside a, an experimental house for a year. You know, just that that wonderful thing of actually working with them. I'm not saying we've got a year to do an experimental house on retrofit, but just doing the very simple thing of sitting down with the occupant for a couple of hours and really rigorously working through their lifestyle. So uh, if anyone is interested, we're going to be talking about this. I think we're the first panel on the Thursday, the 7th at Future Build. So talking about this particular project uh, with uh, Zach from Energy Sprong and someone from Osborne, the maintenance company, I think it's Kim, you will meet her there. Just to talk about the the insights that we've gained from this, this resident research and what amounts to a trailblazing project. And the bit that always seems to be missing from all of these projects, and this is not to criticize everyone because, you know, we have to get things wrong in order to learn how to get them right, is that the resident engagement Absolutely. isn't strong 100%. enough. Yeah. And this goes from the initial briefing about what the project is. Are we even addressing the right issues? But who are we to presume? And being with them through the process, helping them to feel properly invested in the process. Mm. Like Again, this is something, so Tanya Jennings raised this when we had her on last year. Uh, people in social housing usually end up feeling that retrofit is something done to them, not for them. Absolutely. And, you know, something else we always need to remember is that, you know, the best sensors in any building are the people in it. And yeah. it's going beyond that notion of even investment. I would I would say co-design because quite often people come up with better solutions than the designers. 100%. And it's just hard. That's hard for designers to hear because they've been trained to think they are the designers. But not everywhere. Yeah. Like if you think about planning pathways on housing developments. They gave up because they realized there's no point us doing this. Let's see Just what people do. get the desire do. line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you need desire lines to run through houses. Yeah. Like, and you've got to work out what they are. Work well, out maybe what that's, outcome maybe, is. Maybe that's what we need, Dan, is a desire line through the retrofit process. Yeah, 100%. If we could have a resident desire line that yeah, yeah. through it, that would be wonderful. Well, that's sort of what we are pointing towards with this this research and I think trying to pull all sorts of other bits of resident research and retrofit research from all sorts of other sources to try and make sense of all right what's happening here and the what is only of partial interest because you know too hot too cold too damp too dry whatever 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 why it's only the why that's really interesting yeah, yeah. the why you can work out what you should be doing and without that we're just flailing around like buffoons which has been the the building industry until now, broadly. Oh, we can't end on that note. We've got to end on a more positive one. Yeah, well. Um, there are ways forward. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing, so the thing we've not had the opportunity to talk about today is your contemporary obsession with maintenance as a yeah. driver of all sorts of things, which I think we'll have to have you back on again hopefully soon to talk about maintenance if you're up for it. Yeah, maintenance is a huge thing for me, yeah. Because maintenance can be used as a... So just to, to end on a, a, a sort of positive, like maintenance can be used in a proactive rather than reactive fashion. Absolutely. Maintenance can drive housing forward. Exactly. And retrofit in particular, through yeah. adequate maintenance, you can work out where retrofit should be Absolutely. applied. 
So this was the original plan. We were going to talk about low-hanging fruit and maintenance and using maintenance as a driver for identifying <laughs> we were, where the low-hanging we? fruit Yeah, is. we were going to do the maintenance thing. Sorry. Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, such is life. Well, it's been really interesting. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been really good fun. Like, Thank you very much for your time. But I My think uh, we'll have to, if you're up for it, we'll have to follow up with that maintenance conversation because I think in your, uh, do you know uh, Fiona's retired, Jeff? Um, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. But not really. Active retirement. Highly active. Able to say what I think rather than (laughs) showing the line. Yeah. Yeah. But you're you're still very involved. I would not have ever seen you as somebody who told the line from my uh, my knowledge (laughs) of you. That's very kind of you, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, All right. So is there anything that you'd hope to communicate or put across that we haven't had a chance to touch? No, no, I don't think. I think we've we've covered a huge range of stuff, probably slightly superficially, but at least we've got round it all, which is my intention. You know, to to, to yeah. big picture, and I mean the takeaway for me from from all this is is think out of the box and you know think very carefully about the carbon the carbon situation and and trying. Do you actually need to do half of this stuff? Is the big question. Yeah. Well, what outcome are you hoping to achieve? why are you looking at that one in particular mm. and is the thing you thought you wanted to do really the right thing yeah and if you can answer those questions to your own satisfaction but not to your satisfaction because i think that could be incredibly difficult uh <laughs> but yeah i then you can be sure you're on the right track and if you're paying proper attention through maintenance or post-occupancy evaluation then you can work and out pre, when you make occupancy evaluation. Yep. Yeah. Evaluation as well. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, well, thank you again so much for your My time. Pleasure. It's been really interesting. Yeah, no, it's great to see you both. And I do I think you're doing a great series, by the way. I think it's it's excellent. So keep up the good work. Thank, thank you. you very much. Uh that's uh yeah, it's lovely to hear coming from someone someone as esteemed as yourself. Stop it. Yeah, big up. Thank you. All right. Uh well, thank you for listening, them them at home, who still are, presumably. Join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC, check all of them. They're all in the show notes. Uh, ladies, check her own space. I don't know, have you heard of them, Fionn? I don't think I have, no. Laura Coupe, a uh, previous guest. It is a, a forum for women interested in renovation from whatever perspective, Great. particularly retrofit and energy efficiency but not exclusively all sorts of things it's really it's really interesting um you should check it it's on her own space it's in the show notes uh check lloyd alter's substack carbon upfront check pacifies plus advertise subscribe talk to us like us as in zero ambitions the consultancy if you've got any projects in the offing if you want a word with someone who might be able to give you a steer if even if we're not the right people to help, we probably know people who can. And finally, uh, if you get something out of this, the the podcast, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. Oh, and review the podcast. That helps apparently. And if you can't be asked doing any of that, fine. Don't. Cool. Um, just hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Anything you you've got to add, Jeff? Oh, you're no. you're doing you're chairing a session somewhere soon, aren't you? Oh, what this the European Parliament thing? Yeah, Is that yeah, that's, that's a while. That's a, that's a while. That'll be on the new um, recast 
to the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive um, and and what, what drivers that, what changes that will include, uh, such as embodied carbon calculation in energy performance certs, which is a fascinating uh, development, you know, and uh, shame we had to wait for, you know, the apocalypse for it to happen, but sure, better late than never, you know. All right, well, we'll plug it again. I don't know if there's a link we can put in the show notes or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll find out. Yep. All right, well, you know, uh, keep an eye out if you're in Ireland, check it. Um, one for the heads, I presume. Anyway, right. Thank you very much, Fionn. Cheers, Jeff. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank, you and thank you at home. Cheers. Bye.